Welcome to episode six of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's N-A-I-L-D.org, nail.org. Why innovative lighting? Why should you join? Well, first of all, you can hang out with the host and the co-host of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast because that's we know you want to do that. Talk about light bulbs all day. It's like a Star Trek convention for light bulb people. Come on down. But the real reason, guys, is the education. Education through dialogue by talking to people that sell light bulbs every day at the convention and, and then also some formal education. And I'm talking about LS1 here, folks. Lighting Specialist 1. I don't care what anybody says. Lighting Specialist 1 is the absolute best fundamental overview of the existing lighting environment that there is. It takes you from incandescent, halogen, the sun, how the human eye absorbs light into CFLs, metal halide, mercury vapor, a high-pressure sodium, low-pressure sodium, fluorescent T12, T5, and has a fantastic LED module at the end. How many of you guys out there listening to this show even know how LEDs work? Come on, man. you got to take Lighting Specialist 1. Don't be ashamed. If you don't want to join Nail, go to nail.org and sign up for LS1. Why not, man? Get it going. Guess what? It leads into LS2. What does LS2 do for you? Well, it's Lighting Specialist 2. Well, Lighting Specialist 2 teaches you how to renovate the existing lighting environment. What do you need? You need energy efficiency. Lighting Specialist 2 teaches you how to analyze lighting systems for energy efficiency and give the customer the right light at the end of the day. Circadian rhythm, it's got color, temperature, all sorts of different things. So Lighting Specialist 1, Lighting Specialist 2, where do you go from there? Well, then you go into Lighting Specialist Controls, LSC. Teaches you how to control the lighting environment, man. Come on. Where are we going with this thing? We're going into controls. Everybody knows it. The DLCs jumping into controls. LS1, LS2, LS controls. Take them. Nailed member or not. The power of association. Bunch of competitors got together. They put their money in a big pot and they came up with some fantastic educational programs. And they're available to you. Whether or not you want to join the association. But you should join. Bam. Come on, buddy. And you can hang out with us. This podcast is sponsored by Keystone Technologies. Listen, these guys have been around for so long. 1945, I think they started something like that. I was just on the website the other day checking them out. They've been around forever. Family-run company. They're a leading manufacturer now, though, of LED lamps, drivers, and retrofit solutions, and they're excited to kick off the summer with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. The first product they want me to talk to you guys about is their direct drive LED lamp replacements for T5HO and T5HE. What's special about these? Well, guess what? You don't need the ballast. Well, why does that matter with T5HO and T5HE? Well, guess what, folks? Unlike T8, T5HO and T5HE already have the unshunted sockets you need. No need to replace the sockets. You take the line voltage, you slam it right into those unshunted sockets, and you're off to the races. The lamps are fired. Keystone's got them in 2 foot, 3 foot, 4 foot, 50% energy savings, 50,000 hour lifetime. Go to KeystoneTech.com. That's Keystone as in the Keystone State, Pennsylvania. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, baby. KeystoneTech.com. Or you can email T5 at KeystoneTech.com. They'll give you VIP pricing for being a listener to the show. That's right. Get a grip on lighting listeners. Get VIP pricing. Spec sheets, samples. They're also a nailed vendor. So I'm a nailed member. Keystone's a nailed vendor. Yeah, visit KeystoneTech.com. And nailed.org. Oh, we did it. We have some ads. Guess what, folks? We're sponsored and we're the official podcast of Nailed, which means that Greg Eric and Michael Colligan are going to be talking to you guys about lighting for at least another year. So look forward to it. Download us. Complain. Complain at Get a Grip Podcast on Twitter 
or email us at getagrippodcasts at gmail.com or you can even go to the website. Yeah, you can still do that too. Getagrippodcasts.com. That's getagrippodcasts.com. Two P's between the grip and the podcast. Don't forget to put that extra P in there so many people forget. we got a great show coming up for you here. If you haven't heard of edisonreport.net, that's edisonreport.net. we got the editor on the show today. you got to go to Edison Report, folks. Uh, if you're in the business for a while and you want to figure out what's going on in lighting, we're, I'm not talking about what the difference between T5 and T8 is. I'm talking about the inside scoop, who's hiring who, who's buying who, mergers, acquisitions, bankruptcies, what's going on. you got to visit edisonreport.net and the editor of that website, Randy Reed. This guy's got his finger on the pulse of the lighting business. We had a great chat. We talked about the future of the lighting business. We talked about the history of the lighting business. We talked about the Illuminating Engineering Society. We talked about Light Fair, the importance of all these different things. This guy's an old soul in this game, and Greg and I really appreciated him coming on the show. And I won't take any more of your time. So without further ado, I give you Randy Reed on episode six of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Randy. How are you? I'm well, Michael. How are you today? Good, good. Say hi to Greg Eric. Hello, Greg, and thank you all both for having me today. Yeah, for sure. Hi, Randy. Good to have you. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. Listen, Randy, I did a little research on, on your biography, and I, I see here that you're a lieutenant colonel, or you, you're a lieutenant colonel retired from the U.S. Army? Yes. Oh, U.S. Army Reserve. Okay, and uh, that's a pretty high rank. Yeah, I was in, I think, almost 24 years and uh, last mobilized for Operation Iraqi Freedom and uh, worked at USARC, which is the U.S. Army Reserve Command in Atlanta and really enjoyed my time in the Army Reserve and I miss it quite a bit. Is it the camaraderie with uh, fellow soldiers that you miss the most or the work or what is it? It, it, it really is. It, it's the friendships. It's the friendships. So it was kind of like a hobby mm. because I really enjoyed it so much and I got paid to do it. Wow. Randy, were you in Tennessee? Is that where it was based? Yes, I was in Nashville, but my unit was actually based in Atlanta at the okay. U.S. Army Reserve Command at Fort McPherson, which unfortunately is now closed. Tell us a little bit about Resilient LED. So Resilient LED is our brand and we focus on tough environments, tough environments, tough requirements. Typically, we will go into an end user and we'll ask, where are your lights burning out? Give us your toughest area. Let us fix that area. And then we'll do the rest of the plant to save energy. But we, we really look at IP65 situations, uh, high temperature situations, tough environments. That's where we focus. Are you in mines and stuff like that? Yes, we have class one div two, a hazardous location, which will be in mines. Are you a manufacturer? Like, do you sell those products to distribution? Yes, we manufacture and then we sell through the existing uh, distribution channels. So we go through uh, traditional uh, agents or representatives in every market, and then we sell through electrical distributors. Now, Randy, the hazardous lighting, uh, are you doing mostly LED lighting? Or you still have a HID source that you prefer or what do you guys no. think is best? Greg, we're 100% LED. Okay. Now, just a, a little bit about my background. I'm an old uh, HID guy. Uh, HID yep. product manager, and then uh, worked with a company with electronic HID, and then Luxum, of course, was plasma. So I was one of the last persons to really move to LED. I joke that nobody was more wrong about LED than me, <laughs> but pretty much 100% of what we sell now is LED. I still sell some plasma, 
overseas. Uh, India, uh, Thailand is still a, a very good market for us in plasma. But in the U.S., just about everything I do now is LED. Now, what, what about the high ambient temperatures? Is that uh, is HID is still better when you're over 55C, is it not? No, it's not. It absolutely okay. is not. And if you think about it, it, it really doesn't matter what the technology is so long as the fixture is rated for a particular uh, temperature. So we offer some 65-degree C LED product. Okay. Well, That's a pretty harsh environment. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And uh, and that's what we do well. That's the you don't have any problems with the electronics? After. Like the electronics in the fixtures don't overheat? Like you keep them cool? Sure. For example, we have a 120-watt uh, system, LED system, and it replaces a 400-watt metal halide system. We also have a 300-watt system that replaces a 1,000-watt system. So if you think about that, 300 watts of heat is a lot of heat. So when we need to go 65 degrees, in essence, we take that 120-degree product, but we put it in that, excuse me, we take that 120-watt product and we put it in that 300-watt housing. So by doing that, that's how we're able to get up to the 65-degree C and protect those electronics. We do something else, Michael, that's somewhat somewhat interesting. In essence, we do not buy a third-party driver and strap it to our fixtures. Our drivers are integral. They're built in. And by doing that, we mount the MOSFETs, and that's the highest temperature component, directly to the bosses or the thickest part of the fixture. So by doing that, we get superior heat dissipation as opposed to just strapping on a ballast or a driver. There's no active cooling on these fixtures? No, we do not believe in active cooling uh, whatsoever. Regardless, I tell people, even if you don't buy my product, don't buy a product with active cooling. We don't believe in the fans. And I've been around the industry since 1983. And invariably, uh, dirt will get in or the fans will fail. And then you have a real issue. Hmm. Now, what is, uh, what's the maximum that an HID, I know this isn't really on the topic we're going to be talking about mostly, but what's the maximum an HID source can go in terms of Celsius? I think they also can go to 65 degrees C, depending okay. upon the fixture design. So typically what you would do, Greg, is you would remote mount that ballast mm. yep. from the lamp. So that way you don't have the heat of the lamp baking the ballast. There, there are 65 degree applications that have been HID, you know, for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And now we are able to do it with some wattages in LED. Randy, how much penetration do you think there is into the extreme environment from an LED perspective? Is it the lowest penetration or is it the highest or middle somewhere? Uh, I think it's the lowest. Now, I don't know. I suspect it's the lowest. And here's why. Many companies, you take your large conglomerates, they converted their highest volume products to LED. That's what they did first. And their lower volume products, which would be the hazardous location, the high temperature, those have kind of been the last ones to convert. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, so we really haven't seen huge conversion to LED. They're kind of in the process of doing it, but you have to realize how expensive it is. You know, you're talking fifty or sixty thousand dollars to get UL on a Class One Div Two, and then of course our friends at DLC want to take the pop on every SKU. That's what we wanted to know. <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, it is uh, a yeah. part. It is a tax on our industry sure it is. with what they're doing. Now, I'm I'm good friends with the DLC people. I mean, they're really good people. But regardless, it is, in my opinion, a tax on the industry. So it prevents companies like mine from launching more class one div two products or more high temperature products because I've got to pay the fee for every single SKU. 
You know, you know the. Uh, it's funny. Brady Nemeth's been on this show a couple times uh, from the DLC. He's starting to look at you know guys like Greg and I will call them out on this stuff if they ask us the truth, right? And not that I, I think the DLC uh, is. I think they're good people, like you said. I think it's d- driven largely from utilities, though. It's not an in the DLC is not really a lighting industry thing as much as it's a utility thing. Does that make sense? The utilities want this. The electrical utilities want the certification of the DLC so that they can have some sort of measure of quality in their rebate programs. So it's not a lighting industry thing, Randy. I think it's more of a utility. It's driven from utilities. I don't know if you would agree with that, but you have to pay. Uh, sure. <laughs> I, it, it, yeah, exactly. It is driven by the utilities. There is no doubt. And it really was the wild, wild west. And each utility was having to do their own testing. And it was a mess. And the DLC did come along and clean that up. But like a lot of things, I think the uh, the best intentions kind of got out of hand. Mm-hmm. And now the Maybe. DLC, and again, very fine people at the DLC, but it's just become this monstrous organization. And now they really are a gatekeeper. So it is driven by the utilities. But the facts of the matter are, if I want to sell my products, I have to have DLC listing. Even if it's not going on a rebate, they have uh, created such a, uh, a brand, if you will, that people that aren't even getting rebates will require a DLC certification. Mm. So it has just created into a monster uh, for the industry. Just to change gears, unless you do you have something else to jump on that DLC thing, Greg? I got it. No, no, I, I agree. So yeah. you were the you were the president of the IES from two thousand and one to two thousand and three. So that's that's kind of before the whole LED boom. What was going on at the IES then, and what's different now? Great question. So I was president uh, two thousand two through two thousand three. I was uh, senior vice president in two thousand one, and then it rolls over to two thousand and uh, and two as president. But basically, what I was dealing with was something uh, kind of brand new called online education. Mm. Okay, we were really trying, and it was so crude. Looking back at it, it was so crude. But what we were talking about was instead of every section doing their education, what if kind of the national IES could put together some modules out there and really kind of control it and have have webinars and that sort of thing. And I, I believe how we did it is there would be some PowerPoint presentations that would be emailed uh, in advance. And then the trainer would uh, would be on a, a conference call, if you will, and then would kind of go through and then the, the section would turn the different slides. We really worked hard on online education, uh, you know, in, in its infancy. And then we also did some streamlining within IES. We had regional managers, which were going out and working with each section. And it was a very uh, expensive program and very hard to measure its success. So we kind of made some changes there as well. What's the difference between the IES's focus now? Or are you still connected to it? Do you still kind of know what's going on over there? Or Sure. I'm a I'm past president and we get together every year at the IES annual conference and we have a lunch together, a formal lunch, you know, kind of discuss the issues. And then uh, this year, they're even doing, they have some plans, I'm not quite sure, to kind of introduce the uh, the past presidents as more of an organization within the IES. And we are trying to have more meaningful conversations with the, the IES. But I would tell you, the society is so different today than it was when I was president. It's much more professional. They have new leadership under uh, Tim Lacerda, the executive vice president. They have really uh, rolled in many new best practices 
uh, I, I can't say enough good things about how they continue to evolve. Just about a month ago, they launched a new website, which really has a lot of valuable tools. And if you think about it, um, when I was president, we were uh, redoing the handbook and we used to measure our performance in pounds of material that we would read. And of course, all of that now is, uh, is digital and it's really been streamlined quite a bit. Now, I'm a big proponent, Randy, of the IES, and I've got my LC and everything, but how do you feel the credibility or importance of the IES is now compared to what it was when you were president? That's a tough question, and I, I hate to answer that, but I will. I do think that the IES has lost some of their relevance over the uh, past several years. I won't say that, well, yeah, when I was president, it was all great, and because I'm not president, that had nothing to do with, with me. It's just over time, it has evolved, and other organizations have stepped up. You know, uh, LEAD is a much more viable program. The Green Buildings Council. I think International Dark Sky Association is much more viable and important today. And then you do have organizations that weren't even around when I was president, right? We didn't have a DLC. We didn't have that. And now the DLC has taken a lot of um, kind of control of the industry. So it's unfortunate. And I would say that the IES is uh, less relevant. But I do think with the leadership that is in place now, they're doing a tremendous job to try to gain back some of that relevance and to change and adapt as they need to. Do you think it's a part of it is because of the new manufacturers who've entered the marketplace and never really had a good understanding of it and haven't really taken the time to care much about it? I think that has a little something to do with it, but okay. I, I think that the IES was not bold uh, several years ago and didn't step up when they should have stepped up in, in certain areas. Sure. You know, I think that's kind of related to, Randy, you being the last to the game with LEDs. I, I, I think that, you know, a lot of traditional lighting guys, so I started in the business in 99 and I started off, you know, just selling light bulbs to people. And I think, you know, as, you know, we went through the T8 situation, the fluorescent T12 to T8 and T5 and all that kind of stuff, you know, reliability was an issue with some of those things. And so we weren't the first people to jump in the pool. And I think the IES is kind of in the same boat in that sense. And they were late because they were cautious and not unduly cautious, but it just, uh, as circumstance happens... It ended up that the LED thing did take off and a lot of us, you know, did well with it, but some of us were a little bit late to the game and for good reasons. Right. I think it's the same thing, Randy, for the reason why, you know, Resilient was, you know, started late in LEDs. I think it's for the same reason the IES did. Would you say that's true or untrue? Yeah, absolutely. But I would say this, that the IES has really reinvented themselves to, to gain some of that traction back. And as trends do uh, continue to evolve, I do think that IES will see those trends faster than they did and react with more speed to market. You're just saying that that they've seeded some ground to some newer organizations is what you're saying. Yeah. And it is unfortunate. Mm. Uh, you were on the Light Fair Management Advisory Committee. What years were you doing that? As Senior Vice President of IES, I was on the uh, Light Fair Management Committee, then as President. And then I actually stayed on one more year as past president. So I was on it for three years and really enjoyed my time with Lightfair, getting to know them. And then I believe in 2007 or eight or nine, I can't remember, Lightfair put me on an advisory committee for the show that year. But Lightfair just continues to evolve and grow. And it really is, I, I think, the, uh, the most important show in North America. And I always ask my readers on the Edison Report, the week of Lightfair, how can you be involved in the lighting industry or be a lighting professional and not attend Lightfair? I, I've got to the point, Randy, where I'm an every other year guy. 
I don't know if I agree with you with that 100%. I mean, Greg and I thought, you know, uh, we went over to the Hong Kong Light Fair and felt like we were significantly ahead of the game by attending that convention instead of Light Fair in America. And that was, Greg, would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it seemed like they implemented or had the product that was going to be coming to the marketplace before it got here. You know, that's where it all was made. So we were able to see some of the items that were coming. What year was that? 2014, 15, 15, 15. I think it was 15. 15 yeah something like that. 14 or 15 anyway randy so i think light fair like ies has seeded some ground to conventions elsewhere in the world as lighting globalizes i mean lighting was one of the first global industries yeah i think i think light fair seeded some ground to other players as well randy i don't know if you agree with that so uh, i respect your opinion but i will i will give you slightly different opinion so if you do the every other year one thing that i think you are missing which i, I believe is very important is the relationships and okay. it's still a people business. And I can't tell you how important it is for me to be at Light Fair and to renew the friendships that I have made over the 30 years in the industry and to keep in touch with people. And even if it's just walking by someone in the lobby and saying hello to them, you're still keeping in touch with that friendship. And if you miss Light Fair, I do think you miss a year of seeing a lot of those people. And then there are so many new players. I will tell you, I walk around the show sometimes with my mouth open. Who is this coming? Like Dyson. Okay, Dyson is a vacuum cleaner company. Hmm. Well, yeah. they're at Light Fair now yeah. showing fixtures. Now, Dyson may very well be showing those same fixtures that you saw in Hong Kong. And I do agree that we are in a global market. Much of the production is done in China. And I do go to the Hong Kong Light Fair, the Guangzhou. I go to Light and Building. And you do see a lot of the, uh, the, the, the new products there. And then you will find them launched here because many companies private label. It's unfortunate with the manufacturing situation the way it is, but it is what it is. But I still think that Light Fair is a must-see show. And I think some of the other shows are important because you can see the product. But just for the relationships, uh, for me, it's very important. You know what, Randy? I'm going to undertake to go to Light Fair every year now. You won that argument hands down with that one, man. Edison Report, how did you, I saw that you started it in 1999. Can you give us the how and why of the Edison Report? Yeah, two reasons. I was big with the IES board of directors. At that point, I was hoping to become president. I was on the board, I believe, as a director. We had a major issue. And one of the issues was that the manufacturers wanted to have light fair every two years. They wanted to light in building in Germany. I think then it was called Hanover Fair uh, one year, and then the off year do light fair. Well, the way I looked at it as, as a person with IES, wow, we would lose a ton of our revenue because much of the IES revenue comes from light fair as one of the owners of light fair. And so we were brainstorming of different ways to keep these manufacturers engaged. So I thought, wow, what if we had a, a website and I could uh, write articles kind of anonymously and try to sway people the importance of light fair because we we sincerely believe that the industry needed light fair every year because of new product development and because of relationships so that was one of the goals <clears throat> there was a blog i don't know if you ever heard of anything called the drudge report they uh were political and i said what if i become the drudge report for the lighting industry and i'll report on rumors i'll report on acquisitions 
So that's how it started. And then over the year, and you know, I didn't make any money the first three or four years. I mean, no money. I just did it as a service. But uh, it's really grown over the last uh, the last 20 years. And I make a really good living out of it now. That's pretty Machiavellian, Randy. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I like your style. I, that's really smart. I really like it's your worked. style. Yeah. And Randy, Randy, how do you get a lot of your stories? And I mean, do you have other people that help with input or is it just the relationships with everybody you know? Or Well, so we have an office here and, uh, you know, we, we, which, you know, runs for runs the Edison Report. But what's happened is by being an, a past IAS president, I know a lot of people in the industry. And by having done the Edison Report for almost 20 years now, now I have built up a lot of relationships. So what's unique for me is I don't have to go out and get a lot of the stories I mean, they just come to me. So uh, yesterday there was an acquisition. Osram purchased Lead Engine. Okay, Lead Engine, a small company. I know them. I was not privy to any of that before it happened. But the instant it happened, I received an alert from, you know, a contact who said, hey, this just happened. And then I began to investigate and I got the information. So what's, what's exciting about my business, I don't have to reach out a lot. A lot of people reach out to me and that, that makes it nice. And there's something else. So I did it anonymously for probably the first 10 or 12 years. And by doing that, I created a lot of buzz because people were always trying to guess who the Edison Report was. Now, as I would interview CEOs like Larry Powers, then of Genlight, I would ask him, now, please keep me anonymous because I, you know, I don't want to be out there. And again, I'm working in the industry. So I'm selling electronic ballast to companies on Monday. And on Tuesday, I may be criticizing them for moving uh, a plant to Mexico or moving their headquarters to Ireland to get a better tax rate. And that's why I wanted to be anonymous. And But by doing that, what I didn't realize is it created a lot of buzz and a lot of speculation genius, and just got Randy. a lot of people talking about Randy, it. Randy, it's it's absolute genius. I really applaud you. I didn't, this is a good story. You're out there, you're laying down secrets, of, you're laying down the secrets <laughs> of the industry. You're telling everybody to keep their mouth closed. When did it come about that, hey, what's Reed up to? When did, get, when did you get figured out and how did it happen? I was at Leiden Building. And I think it was six years ago. Lighting Building is a show in Frankfurt. And I was beginning to do, uh, I wanted to do on-camera interviews. And so the thought was, well, I'll have the camera over my shoulder and you can just see the person I'm interviewing. You would hear my voice, but you wouldn't see me. And then I just wrote, hey, this is dumb. This is awkward. A lot of people knew it anyway and, you know, kept the secret. And so I just said, you know, it's time to come out. So I actually did a video at uh, Lighting Building announcing who I was. And I didn't realize how much it would help, but it really helped. It helped take it to the next level because now people would approach me publicly and discuss things. Mm. Whereas before it's like, oh, Randy, I know you're, I know who you are, but I know you're keeping this secret. So I don't want to insult you and approach you because I know you're supposed to be anonymous. But when I kind of came out of the closet, so to speak, that's when tons of people approached me. And I really think it helped take the Edison Report to the next level. How about resilient? Did it affect that in a negative or positive way? No, I think it's always affected my business in a positive way. But if you look at the Edison Report, do you ever see an article on resilient? No. no. I um, I don't want to uh, use the voice I have for personal gain. Mm. So in a way, it's kind of a handicap because we're doing a ton of neat stuff at resilient. 
but I just feel I need to keep a certain wall between the two companies. And that's why you don't see it on uh, Edison Report. That's an ethical choice right there. Do you know anything about lighting distribution, Randy? Like and, like people like Greg and I who sell to the end users? Do you, have you ever been in any of those businesses? Do you have many people you know in those businesses? Now, I want to understand, when you say lighting distribution, I think of electrical distributors. Is that what you're referring to? No, we're specialty lighting distributors. So okay. we're we're like electrical distributors, except we go as far, I'd say, Greg, what, into the wire nuts, sockets, and I don't know. I, do you sell any pipe and wire, Greg? I don't. No, I don't. No breakers. But we nope. sell, what we do is we specialize in selling, well, we used to, now we specialize in other things. But traditionally, the model of our type of business is selling replacement lamps and ballasts to commercial and industrial properties. Is that a fair assessment, Greg? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sort of on the semi-wholesale level. So not skids of lamps, but boxes of lamps. So, you know, three, four boxes of T8s to this guy and 10 ballasts. And a lot of the the people in our industry that are still around have transitioned that business from that model into a project-based LED sales model, including rebates. So we're the type of companies that are often in front of the person who's going to buy a light fixture and put it in their factory. And we're talking them into switching to LED instead of buying that case of metal halide bulbs or instead of buying that case of fluorescent tubes. So we've been in a position for what, Greg? 15 years of, mm-hmm. you know, rebates and end use, but, you know, larger, not not consumers, but, you know, business to business. Those type of companies, I think have, and this is what I was talking to DLC about, guys like Greg and I know a lot about lighting from the trenches. There, I'll use a military uh, expression for you, Colonel. Um, okay. We're in the trenches. And do you know much about that business? I know a little about it because... I, too, and our organization, we call on those same end users. I mean, not the identical ones, but we do call on those end users. And we're doing a similar thing, but we are always trying to run it through our distributor customers. The way I think you're doing it is you're out there, man. You're in the trenches. You're creating the demand. And then you are fulfilling that demand yourself. Oh, well, no, we would be buying yeah. from companies like Resilient for sure, Greg. Wouldn't you say? You don't bring anything in from China, do you? Yes, no. we do. Well, we Resilient do. does, but we what we would do is buy from somebody like Resilient who sources it. And so we're out there kind of specifying and selecting the product a lot of times for a customer based on hearing 50 different people tell us what they should sell us. See, you I know? think you're the I think you're the most important part of the business model because you're with the customer. Well, that's my, that was my point. I mean, distributors are the most ignored by the DLC and the IES and all these folks at Lightfair and all that, but distributors are the last line of defense that the industry has between the end user and the product, you know, not having, you know, top distributors or especially ones that are very regionally strong. So most good lighting guys are regionally strong. Wouldn't you say, Greg? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you you compete with many national companies? I don't compete with any national companies in Canada. It's all Ontario. Yeah, every now and then they'll come into a big project, but not often. Right. And so we're the last line of defense. And I think, you know, after that, you're into, you know, contractors, which I don't think the IES has access to. So I, I think a lot of, and this is what I was saying to the DLC, you guys need to bring us into the conversation when, when you know, in at those roundtables, uh, Randy, that you're talking about. I think you need some distributors at those roundtables too. Do you have many? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. That is missing. And uh, we did a forum with the DLC a few years ago at Lightfair. And 
as a result, I believe they began to bring in smaller fixture companies, okay, to their roundtables, because I think they were just focused kind of on the big, large conglomerate fixture manufacturers. But to your point, I don't think that they do a very good job of talking to distributors. I think IES is sure making an effort to talk to distributors, but I think you're right. They're, they're kind of left out. And that's a problem because they are in the trenches and they are the first ones with the customer. And on top of that, I mean, it's like a, a, an officer in the army not listening to the NCOs, like sergeants and corporals. Oh, great analogy. <laughs> right? Really? Like, yeah. Right? I mean, it's the NCOs that run the army. Yeah, sure. For sure. And when you, when you accidentally call an NCO an officer, they will correct you and they will say, oh, no, I work for a living. <laughs> I get that. And there you go. Like I, you know, many people like go to conferences and they're t- like Greg and I are sitting at the back, and Greg and I kind of came up together. We're kind of a unique kind of crowd. We came up in lighting distribution, but at the end, so we we're kind of young enough to get the new feel of the industry, but old enough that we have some history in it. Greg and I kind of sit at the back. This is why I can't go to light for anymore and stuff. Like, are you right about the relationships? But when I sit in a crowd and I'm listening to some guy talk about lighting, and this guy's never sold a light bulb to anybody. I mean, right. I see, Greg, how often do we see that? Probably 75% of the time. <laughs> like this, this guy's never sold a light bulb to anybody. And he's trying to tell me what's, what's going to happen next in the industry. I'll right. tell him. So see, yeah. And, and this is what happens. I think a lot of these, uh, you know, we've had a ton of these Silicon Valley companies, uh, venture capital based to come up and then they will hire a guy from a conglomerate to be their VP of sales. And he's going to be totally in charge of their sales. And but he's a big corporate guy. He's used to having, you know, to meeting with the the agent principals and then having the agent principals to train their guys and their guys go out and train the end user. This VP of sales has probably never sat with an end user in his life. So he goes to work for these companies, they pay him a fortune. And then after, you know, eight or nine months, they realize he doesn't know how to sell. And he doesn't have any of the relationships with the end users. He's just kind of a middleman to go through all these channels. This is why guys like you two are really very valuable. Well, this is why we started the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. (laughs) Because, hey, I I agree. I agree. I think it's a great opportunity. So let me ask you this. So looking down the road, I mean, we, Greg and I argue a lot, Randy, about are like how you know how much what's the industry going to be like in one two five years i mean and one of the first podcast one of my guests came on and he basically called the led business you know subject to moore's law now and i thought that was a really interesting comparison you know you know where are we going to be in in five ten years with this randy what do you think well, I don't know. You know, and I, because of Edison Report, I have a lot of information coming to me. And I'll still tell you, I really do not know. I thought over the years that we would see more direct sales, kind of the old Rude lighting model. And of course, Rude was picked up by Cree. But the companies that have come in and said, oh, we're going to disrupt the channel, we're going to sell direct, those companies haven't fared very well. So I still maintain it's a people business and it's a relationship business. And in spite of technology, in spite of the internet, that still seems to trump everything. And I think lighting is confusing enough that you almost need to be on site a lot of times and in front of somebody. You can't do a lot of this remotely. And I, I think that's you know why the distributors like us have a strong regional presence. It kind of makes sense. Well, it's even more important today with controls because every time that I sell a job with controls, typically 
unfortunately, I had to send an engineer to go commission it. Well, okay? we, you missed our podcast it, on controls. We, yeah. Greg, we were just talking about this with a DLC. Want, sorry to interrupt you, Randy. I'm bad like That's that fine. sometimes. But Please. you know what? The DLC is trying to get into controls now. And I told them, I said, you know how many garage control systems I've built over the last 15 years where I'm controlling lights in a garage effectively and people don't even know that the lights are going off? It's that good? And you're going to tell me which control is good and which one's bad and you're not even going to have a guy like me at the table? The controls, I don't care if a control comes from sensor switch, Hubble, Leviton, you know, they're all the same. It's the guy in the garage who's designing it and installing it and putting them in the right place and commissioning them properly and making them work right that matters. It's not the control that matters. The knowledge is all in the installation. Yeah, you're, you're right. And one point I'd like to make, you say that the DLC is getting into controls. I think they're here. I think they're in controls. Well, you know what? I think every lighting guy about five or 10 years into his career says, I'm going to get rich on lighting controls. And then he finds out it's a real pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah, but the ones who have built successful companies have become wealthy because they've sold them to the conglomerates. Yeah, Sensor right? Switch was sold I mean, a couple years ago. These conglomerates have been buying up control companies like you can't believe. And, you know, at Light Fair this year, all of a sudden, you didn't see the word control, you didn't see the word dimming. They just changed the word to IoT, right? They just changed everything to IoT uh, because it's the current buzzword. What's IoT mean? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Oh, yeah, Internet, Internet of Things. things. Oh, Internet yeah. of yeah. Things. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. so everything, it's just that. like they, they told their Marcom communication, everywhere we've got controls, kill that word and put in IoT. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a and marketing you know, deal. Well, you know, yeah. wait till the Russians take them over, the controls, with some of the Chinese take over, they <laughs> hack into those controls. And then, you know, there was a guy, there's a YouTube video out there. I don't know if they took it down, but it, it, it was taken, I think, I'm not going to say the municipality, but from a municipality in Ontario, where they had done LED street lighting with controls and somebody hacked into the controls and was making the lights go off and on and he was driving his car down the road and he had like this uh, music from... Um, like a nightclub playing these beats and it was, and he was controlling the streetlights. Okay. I got to see that. I have not heard that one. <laughs> it's so on I've YouTube. I don't know if out. they still have it up or whatever, but the guy had hacked into it and he was getting the lights to flash like a, like a nightclub and he was driving his car up and down this road with, uh, I don't know what, what's a house music or something playing like something that doesn't have words, but boo, boo, boo. <laughs> <laughs> it was wow. hilarious. That's funny. I mean, they, like, I don't know if this is such a good idea, this IoT, especially with lighting, which is so pervasive. There's lighting everywhere. You could hack into anything. It's, uh, I think it's really, you could hack into the light bulb in somebody's house. That's crazy. Right. So that's a dilemma that the industry has. If you want to make it less viable for hacking, then it becomes much more complicated. If it becomes much more complicated, the end user won't use it. So that's kind of the debate the industry has. Do we make it simple? Well, if it's simple, easily hackable. If it's complex, not as easily hackable, people won't use it. What You know what? The whole thrust behind controls, and I think the, the value of controls and the deployability of controls is way overrated, Colonel, from the trenches. Um, <laughs> I think it's way overrated. Okay, so if we're going to be put on our environmentalist hats for a second, right. and the, th the thrust behind controls is really not about saving cash because the thrust behind LED deploying LED is about saving energy. You can always make a case that you're going to get a payback in a certain number of years. It's very difficult to make a business case for controls, at least in Ontario, when you factor in the Ontario building code and the different rules around it and what you have to do. 
it gets very expensive. And then the hydro rates got to be, or electricity rates have to be three or four times the cost now to justify deploying controls. And then plus, you know, you have a fixture that maybe was 60 watts, two lamp T8 or 100 watt metal halide or whatever. And now that fixture is 30 watts. And so you're, you're even turning off a really low amount of energy. If we have our environmentalist hats on here, uh, Randy, and I don't know your political side to that, and maybe I'll stay off this podcast, but I think it's got to be just lower wattage and clean energy. If you if your concern is greenhouse gases from lighting and you want to use lighting controls to solve that problem, I think you're going to throw a lot of good money after bad. Okay, so uh, very good points here. Um, historically, I have always tried to not sell controls, and here's why. When you add controls into the mix, it, it does increase the cost. It increases the complexity of the installation. But most important is it increases the time to make a decision to buy. When they're adding controls, instead of one person, now they want to get a lot of uh, feedback from other people. And you find that the people never agree. Well, we should dim it at 10 o'clock. No, we should dim it at 9 o'clock. We should dim it when somebody walks through. We should dim it five minutes before somebody walks through. And it delays the sell cycle. And I'm always trying to write an order. So historically, I have tried to stay away from it. But I do think controls are here and the costs have dropped dramatically. And as long as you do it with a retrofit, it, it makes, I think, economic sense. It doesn't make sense to do a retrofit and then come in six months later. Now we're going to add controls. It'll never pay for itself. But as long as you're using the savings from the retrofit to kind of offset the controls it can add to the overall savings. I agree, but as soon as you pull that out, the cost of the deploying of the controls and the cost of the controls themselves and compare them individually to their own savings, no one would ever do that. You, you are correct. I, I would absolutely agree with that. Yep, Brandon. absolutely agree with that. Yep, so uh, one of the questions I have kind of switching gears a little bit, but uh, Randy, said you've been in it since the 80s. So over the years, your website since in late, what was it, 2001? Edison report? Uh, 99 for the Edison report. Okay, so has there yeah, been any one story or item that you can point to that kind of was the start of a transition in lighting, like the LED transition? Do you recall what made it in your head that it was like, now it's here to stay? That's a great question. I will just tell you that the Edison report really fought the transition of LED as uh, because, again, personally, I was an HID guy. I was a plasma guy. I didn't believe in it. I mean, when it first came, I would drive in the car and I would see an LED fixture. I would give the finger to that fixture. OK, <laughs> which is kind of sick. But that's how much that's how much I hated LED. <laughs> And sure. if there was a story about a stoplight and the stoplight maybe had snow on it and you couldn't see what color the stoplight was. And if somebody ran that and they were in a wreck, I'm going to publish that story and I'm going to blame it on LED. Uh, so I was very much against the technology because I knew it would disrupt, you know, everything that we were doing. But looking back, I was I was wrong. I should have embraced it early. But I would say people like Mark McClear. No, we needed you at that time to point out those mistakes. We were the same way, Randy. Yeah. We were the same way. We didn't jump in head first. Yeah. You know, I would say most guys like Greg and I were not early adopters. Whatever the next stage after early adopters, we started transitioning various clients in instead of T8 retrofits. Wouldn't you say, Greg? Yeah, that's for sure. Like we okay. try out a guy with LED, say in 2012, we try a guy out with LED T8 tubes and, and that. We didn't jump right into the pool and the industry needed you to point out some of those safety issues that were going on. So I wouldn't right. say, I think you did the right thing. Right. And maybe we did provide a service. 
because, you know, if, if we were able to delay it a little bit, that just allowed the LED technology to, to get better, right, to get more efficient and to become safer. But there was just kind of this snowball effect. And I guess it was 2007, uh, the first LEDs were presented at Light Fair. You know, in 2017, I would say 99.9% of all the lighting at Light Fair was LED or OLED. And uh, you just don't see the the old technologies. 2007 was my first light fair, my second light fair, actually. And okay. I remember Cree's booth was like a 10 by 10 or a 20 by 20. And they had all yeah. these, like, it looked like Christmas lights hanging around their booth. And, and, I, and now- yeah, I, be I believe Al, Al, Al Rude also at 2007 may have had one LED fixture in his booth. Hmm. Do you recall what item it was that kind of- tipped you there, Randy, when you saw that? Well, I tell you what really got me to believe is when Cree came out with their incandescent replacement bulbs, and I'm good friends with Cree, and they uh, sent me several, okay? They sent me several, and then I would go to Home Depot, and I would buy several, and then I put them in my house. I've got some, um, you know, some rental properties. We put them there, my kids' homes. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a failure in LED. But once I saw the quality of light, because I hated compact fluorescent, right? When I saw the quality of light, that's when I kind of realized, man, this is, um, this is good stuff. And then over the years, it just has become, you know, better and better. Gotcha. Now on your, uh, the Edison report, I see this PDF kind of overviewing the unique visitors and you have a lot of visitors, obviously it looks like. In terms of content, is there one item that has more action than others? Uh, like specific kind of category of sure. you know, whether it's job uh, openings or whatever. No, no, no. It, it's definitely it's acquisitions. And okay. um, mm. because mm. of, you know, our history, we seem to find out about the acquisitions before anyone else. And so we, we cover those. And then we obviously get a lot of hits and a lot of conversations uh, on acquisitions. But that's something we try to do. We really work hard to uh, break the news. And uh, that's 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 kind of what we're known for. We focus on the business of lighting. You know, you're not going to see a lot of great pictures of lighting jobs on the Edison Report, uh, that sort of thing. We really want to focus on the business, and that's what we try to do. Who do you think cares ab about that as much as a, a you know an acquisition? Who are the type of people looking at that? Are they other manufacturers? Or okay, well, so yeah, there are other manufacturers. They're very eager to, and if you think about it, think about a conglomerate when Legrand bought Fine Light. And let's just say you're a conglomerate, okay? And you're maybe a product manager. And if you can find that information out first in your organization and take it to your CEO, then you're kind of a hero. You know, you're really tied into the industry because you know. So everybody kind of wants to find the information and be the first ones to tell the information because it shows that they're well connected. So we, we do find that. And then think about manufacturers reps, okay? If company A buys company B and you represent company B, are you going to lose that line, right? right. So your livelihood is affected. You've worked so hard building this brand for 20 years and now a conglomerate's got it and your competitor down the road who you hate is going to be representing that product. Mm. So that's always bad. And then mm. you're a distributor and you're a distributor and you've been carrying this product of uh, you know, you're a large national distributor and you're aligned with this company. And now this company is purchased by a company you don't normally buy from. And then even contractors will come because they want to know what's going on in the industry and who's buying who and what companies are strong and 
you know, we, we publish a lot of financial results, you know, the public financial results. And if you're thinking about using a product from a company and you see, man, they've lost money for the last 10 quarters, Ooh. does it make sense to use their product? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, you know, what's interesting about that is Greg always likes it when I start off a question like this. I think he's going to cringe in a second, but <laughs> don't take this the wrong way. But when I look at your, your Edison report, it looks like a very intimate Craigslisty kind of place that people who are looking for, you know, something very specific come. Like I saw when I was in the job board, like people wrote, I can't remember what the guy's name was, Randy, wrote like, Steve Johnson is available. The I finished the merger over at XYZ company and looking for a new gig. Anybody need me? It's like it was written like that. Right. So let's discuss that. So first of all, on the Steve Johnson looking for a job, we provide that service free. Okay. So that's absolutely free. And why? I was laid off about 25 years ago for a three-month period and was looking for a job. So I really empathize with people that are in the industry and out of work. So if you're out of work and you want a job, we'll post on the Edison report absolutely free. Now, as far as the Craigslist look. No, I don't mean we, look. I don't mean okay. look. A feel. What I'm talking about is it's okay. got a, a personal feel to it that I think was what Craigslist did well. If that makes sense. Okay. And yeah. I don't, I'm not okay. saying your site looks unprofessional. What I'm saying is that like that was a really unique personal ad specific to the lighting business. Right. And right. I thought that was super interesting. It's not a bad thing. It's kind of, I'm just trying to compare it to something else online that I used to work with in the old days would be like Craigslist. You'd put an ad up there. I got a gig and right. someone from around the corner would, you know, come and mow right. your lawn or whatever. It has that kind of feel to it. And I think that's a, a huge benefit to the business. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it the wrong way. I'm saying it the right way. I was trying to compare my Understood. experience. Yeah. Understood. Thank you for that. And we've had great luck with that. These guys like a Steve Johnson will write me back and say, Hey, the minute I published that four people reached out to me. Wow. That's very powerful. Because again, yeah. it's, it's a people business. You know, when you find out a friend or a buddy that maybe you worked with 20 years ago is on the market, you might say, hey, let's see if we can pick him up and put him in our organization. But I do want to go back to that look and feel of the site because some people will write me and I'll get, you know, we get a lot of sarcasm. Uh, the 90s call, they want their website back, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But we, when we talk to people and we've done some polling, we hired a company to do some polling, we find that people really like it. And many times people will come to the site, they won't click on a thing. They'll just look at the headline, they'll read those two or three sentences and they don't really want to know more. They just want to know what happened. Mm. And so we really try to have it a nice, quick, they want to see who's, they may not be looking for a job, but they want to see who's hiring. They want to see if their competitors are hiring, mm. that sort of thing. So that's what we're trying to do is you don't have to spend an hour on our site and click around on a bunch of links to get to it. You can go, you can look at the homepage, get a sense of what's going on. And if there's something you like, you're interested, boom, click on it. Then you go straight to the site. You're not going to go to my site and have another synopsis and then click to the article. If it's LEDs Magazine and they do a great job, we're going to send you directly to LEDs Magazine so you can get to the meat in one click. Yeah, I felt I, when I scanned your site, I was browsing the headlines really quick. Every time I went there and then, oh, I like that headline. Bam, I click on it. Yeah, I think that your site does that very, very, very well, actually. Now that you point it out, that's exactly how I experience your website. When I go to it, I do a quick scan. I look around. Oh, what's this? Bang, I click on it. And you go to the other magazine and maybe you read that article or whatever. That It's very headlights, like a briefing in a way of the, of the business. How often do you refresh it? 
Well, obviously every day, and uh, we've got a team of people here, and so we refresh it as needed. I mean, there will be times when it'll it'll be refreshed 10 or 12 times a day if we're working on a breaking story, and you know we're just getting bits and pieces of news throughout the day. We'll always update that, and we'll put developing. But uh, at least every day, we try to have news uh, up there, and sometimes news is slow. So like right now, we did a big Hubble feature, and I went and I spent a day in the life of Hubble. And so I've got that ready to go. And when there's a slow news day, probably next week, we'll put that one up. I think Greg's a big Hubble distributor, aren't you, Greg? We do. Yeah, we do. Hubble for sure. I got to tell you, I spent a day with them and I had access to anybody I wanted to. They gave me total unfettered access and I learned a lot. So, Greg, I think you're going to really like this because uh, the Hubble's doing a lot of neat stuff. And, and if you sell their product, you're probably aware of that. Yeah. You went to South Carolina, I take it? I did. I did. Nice. I went to, to, to Greenville. And so of the content that's provided on the website, you're still actively involved in doing what percentage of it? Well, I do a lot of it. I, I do a lot of it. I'm blessed in that I really love what I do. I love what I do with Resilient and LumaFicient. You know, LumaFicient's a company name. Resilient is a brand. And I love what I do with Edison Report. What percent of the time are you doing LumaFicient versus Edison Report? I would say it's about 30% Edison Report and 70% LumaFicient because, you know, like all the advertising, I don't really do that anymore. We've got people that do that. And then some of the press releases, they do that. But on the articles, I really, you know, what's going on in the industry, that's what I enjoy doing. So that's that's kind of what I do now with Edison. And the other people do the rest. Nice. Do you report on bankruptcies a lot? Is there or what, yeah. I'm, what I'm saying, oh, yeah. I know you do. I know you do. What I'm asking, have you, what I'm asking really though is, have you seen an increase in bankruptcies? That's my, my bigger question. Not recently. And you know, bankruptcies, closures, we kind of categorize them all together. A, a company stops. We're not seeing, haven't seen a whole lot lately, but I think more are coming. We're hearing businesses struggling, and I think there'll be more coming. Do you see a lot of industry consolidation down the pipeline here, Randy? Yes, absolutely. And that's at the absolutely at the at both the national distributor level and the manufacturer level. More the manufacturer level than the national distributor level. Look, it's like computers. It just is going to continue to accelerate, right? You used to have a lot of the mom and pops and they're being bought up and I think they will continue to be bought up. When you're thinking about this industry at that level, I always like it when my larger competitors consolidate or merge. It's always an advantage to me. We had an, one national lighting distributor uh, in Canada a couple years ago simply close their doors. They just stopped selling lighting as a line. That was a great thing for us. So is the lighting market shrinking or is it growing, Randy? Like if there's industry consolidation, generally you're in a shrinking market, are you not? Yeah, it's a good question. We're growing in that there is, I think, more retrofits, you know, people replacing fixtures than we've ever seen. But I think it's going to come to a halt, not a halt, but I think it's going to dramatically slow because there are the early adopters. They've already done it now, right? And now you're into the mainstream and the mainstream is retrofitting. The, the problem is like, just take that canopy, that gas station when you go and get gas. Okay. Th those are, I don't know what the uh, conversion rate is. I would say it's probably 60% have converted to LED. Now that's just a guess. But what used to happen is a truck used to go to every one of those stations once a month, a jobber. And he had lamps and ballast on his truck. And then he would replace the ones that were out and give them a bill. And now these fixtures won't need to be changed for at least 10 years, maybe even longer. 
So it's just killed that that whole maintenance side of the business. This is why we work so hard at Luma Efficient to sell our LED fixtures now, because I don't know how much longer there is going to be a market. Once everything has been replaced to LED, well, there'll be more efficient LEDs, but I don't think it will be the efficiency gains will justify replacing your fixtures, you know, again in four or five years. So I think there's kind of one last big sale and I'm 55 years old and I want to get as many sales now as I can because I think in five or well, really in five years, it's going to be different. A lot of that will already have been done it's a race and for, I don't know where the industry goes. It's a race for the socket. It is. The future, which is what we always talk about here on this show, because Greg and I have been in the game, not, not nearly as long as you, Randy, but 15 years, 16 years, something like that. And when I, when I look at it, I see like you, I think the ebb is close. The ebbing of the project world is within a half a decade. I don't yeah. see it really going past six years. Like where it, 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 like how many rebates can they give out? Right. You know, right. and Greg, you were talking about, Greg was talking about uh, deploying controls and lighting as a subscription based model. I don't know. What do you think about that, Randy? You ever heard that before? Lighting by subscription? Well- well, no, I would say lighting as a service. Okay, lighting as a service. To? Yeah, kind of pay per month. Yeah, exactly. So the uh, headline on Drudge, excuse me, the headline on Edison Report right now is lighting as a service gains traction. I do think that there is a a lot of opportunity for that. There's a company called Retrolux, a company called Spark, and I do see that moving. Now uh, we ran an, uh, a link to a Leds Magazine article that Osram is talking about the business model shifting to lighting as a service. So that is kind of maybe the next frontier. And, and I, I do think that can happen. I mean, think about it, like the Xerox machine, right? Nobody owns a Xerox machine anymore. They use that and they pay a monthly fee. And you know, the, the industry had to be conditioned to do that over time. But I do see that coming for lighting. Agree? Uh, you agree? I'm, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. throw a little monkey wrench because I disagree 100% with that. Tell me. I, I, I think that is an industry that is going through massive change, looking for some sort of lifeline to grab onto that's non-existent. You know, Greg, your model was what? You partner with one of the large um, conglomerates that can cover every kind of socket, control or whatever, and then you charge a commercial property or something like that, a monthly fee to replace their light bulbs, upgrade them to the new technology and so on. Was that kind of the model, Greg? Yeah, it was kind of like a cell phone model is how I used it. Yeah. Is that now you can't even buy a cell phone, you you kind of lease them. And and you pay a monthly fee for for that cell phone or you can buy it, I guess, but you know, it used to cost they gave it away for free. Now you pay 300 bucks and they take 10 bucks a month on your bill. And then they just upgrade you when you're done. Yeah, so that I mean, kind of concept. But I I think I I don't think that's deployable in the complicated lighting environment. I I, I just don't know that the customers want that. And I don't know if the people in the position to provide that, like Michael and Greg, want that. I mean, you take... So the most likely candidates for this, uh, Randy, are very, very large commercial properties, wouldn't you say? Yes, including schools. Right. So schools and very large commercial entities, right? You take a look at a very large commercial tower. If you're going to combine both the supply and the labor and the service and everything, you go from running a lighting distribution business or an electrical contracting service company or something into like a facility manager. Because why would you have special guys changing the light bulbs? You just, why not, why don't those guys clean the room as well? 
while they're there. I, I don't see it. I, I think that's well, facility management. They think about this model. Think about a large conglomerate with a national accounts team that's working with these large uh, real estate companies, commercial companies that have a lot of properties. They're so Joe, already a Jones Lang LaSalle or something like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And now this large conglomerate can do the lighting as a service. And guess what? They just left out the distributor and they just left out the agent. I think they're going to have a hard time leaving us out. I think what will happen is as soon as like national, because I get, do you know how many calls I get from US-based companies that are doing a national program? I guess that's a border thing. They don't want to do business in Canada or they'd eat me up. But on the retrofit side, I get a lot of calls from US-based companies that are doing national programs that have 10 stores in Ontario or whatever, and they get me to do all the work for them. Okay. I, because okay. I also, I own a distribution company and a light, a specialized lighting electrical contracting company. So, okay. So okay. we actually have electricians that work for us and go out and change light bulbs. You know, I'm not sure that that model is as deployable as national. I think they need to take over massive electrical contracting companies in order to be able to, to deploy this service at any type of scale. And okay. you're seeing those guys go out of business. Sylvania Lighting Services is done, is it not? I don't believe it's done. I believe that Osram still owns Sylvania Lighting Services. They didn't sell that. But it, it's very hard to understand uh, exactly what's going on. I do think if they are still in business, they have scaled back quite a bit. Right, because And have that's changed hard. their focus. But, but let me give you this. No, but hang so on. They're the, they're the best ones positioned to do this, and they're yeah, retreating. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. And see, the conglomerates will have this theoretical discussion Let's do lighting as a service. So we get the recurring revenue, right? That's the only reason. They want that recurring revenue because they know they're not going to get the replacement market. But here you are. You're the closest guy to the customer and you don't think it's viable. And you're talking to these customers every day. This is why these conglomerates need to talk to people like you. And there you go. Because I, like, if they asked me in one, like, you know, for example, Michael, you own a specialized electrical contracting company based on lighting. Do you want to take over all the lighting at Fairview Mall in Toronto or say whatever, you know, large commercial property? They're going to have to pay me a lot of money in just learning the whole building. These, some of these buildings have hundreds of electrical panels, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of electrical panels. They're enormous in their scope and their size in terms of their lighting systems. They're like little cities. Michael, yeah. I got to jump in. Randy has to go. I'd see a oh. note here from him. So okay. we got to wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Randy. We can okay, go guys, on forever listen, talking I thoroughly lighting. enjoyed it, but I've got another call right now. Yep. But listen, this has been great and I wish you well and I want to keep in touch with you guys. Thank you very much, Randy. All right. Very take good. care. Bye. Thank bye, you, bye. Randy. Bye. What a show, ladies and gentlemen. We want to thank Randy Reed. He had to cut out early, but man, we could have gone on for another, at least another hour. What a great guy. Man, we learned so much. I thank you guys for listening. If you want to complain, you got to go to getagrippodcasts.com or at getagrippodcast without an S on the end for Twitter or getagrippodcasts at gmail.com. This podcast is the official podcast of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors nailed.org that's n-a-i-l-d.org and this podcast is sponsored by keystone technologies keystonetech.com k-e-y-s-t-o-n-e-t-e-c-h.com that's keystonetech.com don't forget about their t5ho and t5he replacements that are the bomb buddy line voltage two three two foot three foot four foot 50 percent energy savings and fifty thousand hour lifetime folks go get them thanks for listening